If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real-life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien, and now Nicole Braddock-Bromley. Holy crap, it's been a year. (laughs) Oh, wait, it's only February. Uh (laughs) Well, obviously a lot has happened in... A little bit of time, but it's a lot of good stuff too. Don't you think it's like time to talk about all this stuff that's kind of rising to the surface? Like we've been waiting for this. We've been waiting for these conversations. And I'm so excited because today we actually have a guest who is not afraid to talk about these topics. And anybody listening who's been listening to the One Voice podcast for any amount of time, you know, I want to go in. I want to go in hard on this stuff. So Man, Tiffany Bloom is with us today. She's an author. Um, she's a speaker. She is an immigrant woman with an interracial family, passionate about equality, justice, dignity. And in this new book that we're going to dive into, Pray Tell. Oh my gosh. It's exploring so many of the dynamics of power, the lack of accountability, just all the stuff that I like love to like sit down and have a drink with somebody and just go on. (laughs) Tiffany, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I'll just go ahead and say that I think you're awesome. Um, Your writing is like, I feel like my heart got just thrown up into this beautiful yellow book. And I am just like, okay, she says all the things. And it was so well said and so boldly stated and the way you captured so many stories of, you know, all of the survivors that we continue to hear about um, through the course of just our adulthood and the shaming that's happened, but you're giving them their voice. You're helping us with the perspective that we need. It was just so well done. And I'm really excited to have you with us and just to share your book with our listeners because like our listeners are going to feel the same way I do. I know it. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. Yes. Yes. So thank you for writing this and thank you for writing this now. Um, so before I kind of have so many questions for you, but, uh, I don't know if you know much about my story, but I am a sexual abuse survivor. Um, I was abused by my stepfather who was a leader in our church and felt silence for years and years until I finally told um, in my teen years. And so I've actually been speaking out since I was 15 years old um, about sexual violence. But when I first started, like no one was talking about this. Right. And I right. came up across so much, um, just so many barriers to sharing my story. But I knew the importance of telling because Every time I talked about it, so many others came forward too, right. you know, and that's what we're seeing now, obviously yep. in the Me Too movement, but this was happening, you know, decades ago. And what I became very passionate about early in my work was educating the church 
and helping survivors in the church understand that they had a voice and that, you know, the patriarchy was alive and well, and I wanted so badly to speak into those places, but the number of Christian schools who, you know, their administration would say, well, that doesn't happen here. Right. And, um, you know, parents even would be rioting against me coming into those kinds of spaces because they didn't want their children learning about things like abuse of power and sexual, you know, all these things. And so I feel like just how the world has changed from when I first started speaking um, publicly, you know, on college campuses and churches 18 years ago to now there's been such a shift. But as you talk about in your book, Pray, Tell, why we silence women who tell the truth and how everyone can speak up. You're saying like, this is something that we will continue to battle as long as the patriarchy is alive and well, misogyny, systemic racism, all of this stuff. Like we have to talk about this, but especially I'm just so passionate about talking about it in church culture and not using scripture to silence women. That was a long intro to me. That was beautiful. I'm (laughs) just, I am just so like, I am ready to go off and I want you to go off. (laughs) Oh, locked and loaded. Okay, good. Well, um, you know, throughout your book, you talk about how, you know, this, this whole idea of silencing came out of your own sort of story of feeling even like in, in the church and in the workplaces, what I gather is you felt like you had to be quiet because, you know, men in power held some sort of, um, what would you say? Just over you could call it a carrot. You could call it my paycheck. You could call it, they held everything, my professional Uh dreams and aspirations. And just as you said, so eloquently, Uh, this is happening everywhere and we never want to believe it's happening to us. And we never want to believe it's going to happen in the context we reside. And so we'll use those self-preservation tactics, such as we're not going to talk about this, that we're not going to address this because it brings up so much fear. And in fact, at research shows that sexual harassment, sexual assault is the leading factor in derailing a woman's career, her well-being, her marriage, her financial status in life. It will destroy a woman, yet we're not talking about it until really, just as you said, the last few years, because we, we want to believe that if we, if we don't talk about it, it's not happening and nothing could be further from the truth. And the situation I found myself in was one where honestly, Nicole, I played by all the rules. I played by all the rules in the faith context and in the workplace I was in. And I was so shocked that not only was abusive power happening at a woman's expense, But I was so shocked that when I decided to speak up after gaining the courage, which as we know, the amount of women who speak up is only a sliver of amount of women that this is actually happening to. So getting the courage to speak up as a bystander, (laughs) uh, as a whistleblower, finally doing that to be met with shame and guilt and manipulation and gaslighting. I was like, what the what? Rewind the tape because I am pretty sure I am walking in honesty and truth and accountability and I am met with degradation. And I, I was the girl who lettered in youth group. I'm like, no, this is supposed to be a safe place. I want to call you to the carpet. But how, how could I do that when I was overwhelmed with a mantle of shame, told don't touch the Lord's anointed, or that could never happen here. Mm-hmm. Or we, he's such a good man. He does such good things. And these right. are the lines we're fed. We have this 
um, struggle in, in society, but particularly in faith culture, where we cannot grasp the dissonant reality of a quote unquote good man who preaches on a platform, who baptized our kids, who goes to Haiti and is generous and benevolent, that that same person can commit hellacious acts at a woman's expense. We cannot seem to grasp that, but he can, and he's exploiting that. So as this person, as a, as a man abusing his power, as this predator is grooming the people around him to give him compassion, to give him empathy or empathy, as researchers call it, to give him that empathy when it's not due, we see how we are complicit in these systems. Because mm-hmm. what happens is we see this on Christianity Today. We read about it on CNN or in our news feeds and we're like, why didn't anyone speak up sooner? Mm-hmm. How did this man get away with this for so long? Mm-hmm. And the reality is, we are complicit in these systems. We are active and passive enabling to, to, because this doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know that more than anybody. And so we have to be able to look at, wait a second, how did I contribute to this? Because Mm -hmm. I am not uh, neutral in this, in this position. I've either contributed or I've not. So it's this ethical dilemma where we all have to ask ourselves, am I loyal to an, an institution or a faith institution or am I going to be loyal to my convictions or a political party? Right. I feel, I feel that so much like that feels like such the next step, you know, having spoken out as a survivor for so many years, it's not just up to us to talk about it. It's the bystanders, just like you're saying, and this whole, it's, it's every single person having to be able to look at themselves. And what are the things that I actually believe? And the problem is, is a lot of times we believe the right thing, but then when it actually comes to our lives, when it affects the leader that we loved, right? Mm -hmm. That's when we start to backtrack and somehow we let them off the hook or, or as you talk about in your book that we give this grace. (laughs) Undeserved. Mm-hmm. undeserved grace. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't want to believe that we were wrong when we trusted somebody, when we offered somebody mm-hmm. our allegiance, when we truly believe that someone is good. Just like you said, politician, pastor, preacher, president, fill in the blank, could mm-hmm. be anybody. And, and research shows that the more a man has access to power, the more likely, I repeat, the more likely he is to believe that he's sexually desirable and will seek out sexual affairs. This is across the board in every sector of society. We can see how power truly corrupts and it leads to the subjugation of women. And so what we do when something bad happens and something hits the fan, we hold up his accolades over a woman's accusations. That's apples to oranges that we can't do that. And even more, we will mine our own brain confirmation bias, looking for reasons to agree with who he is or to back our original uh, belief in this person, because it's very difficult, Nicole, to change first impressions. Mm. It's nearly impossible, um, uh, neurologists say, to change your first impression of somebody. Wow. And when you think of what abusers are so good at, that's their that's First their impression. bread and butter. They are so good at walking in a room and owning it. Yeah. And using, you know, their words. They're so charming. So if you're saying the first impression is hard to overcome, we're all gonna think <laughs> these right. perpetrators are the best until they're grave. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and uh you see this in faith context, especially because when you mix that spiritual element 
that is just a master for disaster. Because if someone was benevolent in your faith journey, because it's more than just your boss who gave you a raise, right? And, and that's and and then if that person is weaponizing your loyalty, that's a whole nother uh, thing to address. Yeah. But when it when you when you mix that spiritual manipulation and abuse, it's really jarring because if this person, if we had an experience with the Lord um, at the leadership of, uh, of, of, of the clergy member, we really are, we're connecting our understanding of who Jesus is with who that person is. Mm-hmm. And we, we, where do we even begin to unravel and untangle those ropes? I mean, we need like a master boy scout <laughs> to come I'm through saying. and help mm-hmm. us untangle that because we're like, no, but but do I need to question who God is if this person is not who he said he was? And in really, in reality, we, ha- we are self-preservation people, right? We move to victim blame. In rape culture and purity culture, we do this both. There must be a reason a woman did something to deserve what she did. Even if it's a confident, intelligent, wise woman of faith, surely she must have done something to deserve it. Because if she didn't, I have to reckon with that this could happen to me. This could happen to the people that I love and I misplaced faith in a person who didn't deserve it. So then we're, we're questioning how we operate in the world and our relationships and how we treat people and our understanding of boundaries and what's okay and what's not okay. And in order to not have to go there, it's easier to blame. It's easier to do the exterior work than the interior work. Mm. Which really gives an answer as to why so many women feel like they have to play the game. Right. Especially not just in the workplace, not just in the church, but then think about people who are working in Christian environments of professionalism. I mean, Mm -hmm. and that to me is like the stories I am holding so much are those who have been abused by Christian leaders, white male Christian leaders. Um, It's just like one after another. And those are the only ones that are being talked about. How many other women have had to play the game in order to succeed and they minimized and, and, and protected this guy who they granted, you know, you talked in the beginning so well, telling the story of, you know, being in this position where someone's celebrating you and they're saying all the right things and they're, and they're creating this path for you for the future that maybe no one else would have. And you feel so special and seen and understood. And, and then soon it, it, it turns. But then right. you owe him. Yes. And that we want to honor the I gatekeeper who often. let us in, right? Yes, exactly. We want to honor the person who let us in the room. And if we have experience with health, with healthy men who have been kind and generous and encouraging and mentored us, um, it's very jarring to see that then weaponized against us, our own loyalty taken advantage of where we feel like he knows I owe him. He is counting on me. Staying silent. He is counting on me falling in line because if I don't, he has so many strings he could pull to destroy my life, my paycheck, my professional life, my place in the system, whether it be faith or business, entertainment, politics, education, fill in the blank. He knows what's valuable to us. And that's the thing about this. I, I, I call it faux egalitarianism because, you know, we have these conservative circles where we know very well that women are second. That is, that is deeply embedded in their theology is baked in the bread. So we know where th- that they think women are second and subjugation is kind of the name of the game for them. And I know that that's a broad stroke, but you get what I'm saying of where women okay. can't speak. Women can't lead. Women are second. Women are to serve men. So you have, you have that camp, but you have this other camp that's like, no, women are equal to men. 
And sadly, what's on paper is not in practice. And so then you have this grooming period where women are lavished upon opportunity and understanding and a place at the table. And it's performative Mm -hmm. because it is so they can be taken advantage of. And I, and I hate to use such black and white terms, but sadly we are seeing this again and again. I think even just this last week with uh, Ravi Zacharias, um, it is just, it's par for the course. We're seeing how men believe that they deserve, they deserve to take advantage of women because of who they are and because of what they've done for the kingdom. Now, if that isn't the most uh, twisted narrative of the gospel, right? and I don't know what it is. <laughs> I love that term, faux egalitarianism, when I read it in your book. I'd never heard that before. And I just thought, wow, that really sums up a lot of things, you know, that have swirled in me for a long time and I've watched it play out, but there was never a word for it. So that made so much sense. And then to think of how it's not only hurtful and you're saying like women are secondary, that's white women. Now you talk about brown and black women. Now that's even below, but yet, you know, they're tokenized and that in my framework, I've seen being used through the grooming process. Yeah. It really is disturbing when you look at this through an intersectional lens, when you see how there's white men, white women, and then people of color and women of color at the bottom of the rung. So it really is um, this desire to contort to meet the dominant culture's expectations in addition to, let alone, you know, achieving equality between men and women. So there's trying to just meet with your, your peers of other women, but then to really be seen as valuable and not just a prized pony to meet a diversity and inclusion benchmark that has now been set because they don't want to appear behind of the times. It's, it's devastating. And in my situation, I was a very much that pony just mm. working the work in the local fair. And I really <laughs> felt because I'm an optimist, I'm a three on the Enneagram. Uh-huh. I am agreeable, diplomatic. I really, truly believe the best, <laughs> always glass half full. So uh, you can imagine my surprise. <laughs> you can imagine my surprise when I'm like, oh, this is performative. Mm. I really do not have a voice here. This is not That's what tough, I thought. Yeah. It's a, it's a hard pill to swallow. And I'm not going to lie, Nicole, a little late to the game, a little late to the game. I thought it was, I thought it was in practice well before it ever was. And, and then finding mm. out that, um, that the agenda set for me wasn't one of honesty and truth and professionalism and encouragement and respect and dignity was a pretty, pretty difficult place to, to you can feel head. really used in that kind of a situation. 100%. And let's talk about stereotypes, how stereotypes play into that. You know, uh, black women in the workplace are two to three times more likely to be harassed or assaulted. Indigenous women are 2.5 times more likely to be harassed or assaulted than any other uh, group. Uh, Undocumented women face a myriad of challenges when it comes to dignity, respect, bodily autonomy um, by their managers in agriculture. They are taken advantage of and threatened with immigration or green cards uh, or that they won't see their children. They won't be able to feed their children the amount of fear and trauma that they're experiencing is inordinate compared to these other people groups that I've just described. And then you pull into that stereotypes of these people groups and it is just devastating. 
women of color, specifically black women, are seen to be hypersexual, sexually deviant. And so men are taking advantage of that. And then when they sit before the justice system, they're able to wave that card through legal jargon and women aren't given the agency and the representation and the recompense that they deserve and the redress. And so in different people groups, again, we're seeing, you know, Asian women are considered to be exotic and subservient. And so of course we can take advantage of them. Of course, in fact, not in the book, but just known fact, uh, Asian women are the most swiped on Tinder. They're also the most harassed and assaulted because culturally they're known not to speak up. They self-silence well before anybody would silence them or threaten them or subjugate them. They'll, they'll do that themselves. And so in each people group, you see how these stereotypes have not only uh, been popularized, but caused incredible harm to women of this particular ethnic group when it comes to an imbalance of power. You have to take into account the dynamics of power. It's not only class. It's not only size. It's not physical size, bodily size. It's not only race. We know it's prestige as well. And so there's there's all of these different dynamics that can be exploited um, and each one have so much variance and it really does uh, make this a really muddy issue. And sadly, um, as you kind of alluded to, white women have largely shaped this narrative. Um, and I, as much as I am grateful for Gwyneth Paltrow and Ashley Judd, which I am, you better believe that I am so grateful that they raised their voice because so many women were able to come out of hiding and were able to speak up because they went first. But long before they went first, you have hourly wage workers at McDonald's who were trying to gain movement at the national level because they were being corralled into the bathroom and taken advantage of by their manager and told they'll be fired and not able to feed their children unless they did that. Mm -hmm. And even to this day, they did not get any sort of settlement that went to the Supreme Court. So from Walmart workers to lawyers, to doctors, to Hollywood actresses, to women sitting in the pews. We see this across the board, women taken advantage of, and we must understand abusers of power. They're looking for that open door. They're looking for that vulnerability. And I don't mean vulnerability is insecurity. They're looking for a way to provide what a woman wants or what she needs or meet her in a low moment. Because as much as we'd like to think only insecure women are preyed upon, that is ridiculous. Right. The most confident, educated, intelligent, emotionally healthy women can be manipulated and drawn into this no-win situation. Mm-hmm. Right, because misogyny and patriarchy. And I'm glad you even talked about purity culture in this book because that's something I think, you know, I grew up in that. And same. it was part of the reason why I stayed silent for so long. Mm-hmm. And I still am unpacking that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is... I would consider myself pretty progressive at this point. However, it it is not within an arm's length for me to reach back into the churches of my families or to bring up a news story that has hit my home community and to hear the comments from men in my family, you know, saying things about that, you know, this is the devil's attack on the church. And I'm like, no, actually he raped her. Like John did it. He needs to take responsibility. Right. So it's so 
I can be in these circles and, and, you know, cooking it up with you about all this stuff. But at the same time, I have people in my life still saying this bullshit and it is so mind boggling. And so, and I do eventually want to get to the way forward with you, but before that, I would love it if you could unpack some of the, not only the purity culture stuff that I feel like we're still living under, um, but specifically the way that scripture has been used to weaponize against women, um, the stories I grew up with, right? Like the Bathsheba, Um, so many of those. And I've heard you talk about it and I, I just think you're amazing. So I just think we all can hear this and be taught. Can you just take us to school for a little bit? You got it. My absolute pleasure. Strap in everyone for your TED talk on this, maybe a mini masterclass, if you will. So here's the thing, starting from Sunday school, we have been fed these narratives where Bathsheba, Tamar, uh, Hagar, they were the women to be used for the purposes of God. You know, as a child, I was told Bathsheba was this lusty lady. Mm -hmm. And in reality, she was cleansing herself after her time of the month and a man took advantage of her and sent his enablers. I repeat, sent his enablers. Other people knew what was happening. This didn't happen in a vacuum to take advantage of her body. This was sexual assault. And of course, you know, we have to be wise of how we package that for children. But by the time we're getting in high school, we're saying, don't touch the Lord's anointed. And we're, and we're talking about David. Mm -hmm. We're talking and we're saying David was a man after God's own heart and women need to forgive. And, but when we look back at that, that narrative of David, and Bathsheba, we see that he took advantage of her, murdered her husband, had this baby out of wedlock that wasn't his to have, destroyed this woman's life. Her life was never the same after she was summoned, after she just finished her period, Nicole. And so here she is, she's taken. And, and then we're told, but he, he was restored. He was restored. Everything was put back together. And in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. We see Nathan, a whistleblower, a male ally to Bathsheba, Mm -hmm. who lent his strength to her, goes to David, says exactly what he's done. And and really, so clearly word got out. If Nathan found out, enough people knew what had happened that Nathan was notified. And he goes to David and says, you have done this and you will not have fully what you had. So, and David repented. We love to skip over the fact that David repented. We love to skip over the fact that David recognized what he did was wrong. And he completely changed from his way. He mourned, he fasted, he covered himself in ashes. And then the ancient of days isn't going to let bygones be bygones. His own son tried to take his throne. He never had the kingdom he once did. Yet still we're fed these stories that, Uh, David was good, that this was just a little blimp on the radar. And in reality, his life was never the same because of taking advantage of a woman. God would not stand for that. Mm -hmm. He would not stand for that. And so in purity culture that really came of age during the late eighties and early nineties was actually birthed out of the Southern Baptist convention Mm -hmm. after the sexual revolution of the seventies. And they wanted to, in their minds, get thing on, get things on track. So rather than talking about what could be a beautiful marriage between men and women and a healthy, holistic understanding of sexuality, the idea was to shut it down. 
And if something went wrong, it was because it was a woman's fault. Her exterior appearance was the reason for a man's downfall. And it was the responsible party was on the women to not wear a white t-shirt, spaghetti strap, a tight fitting clothes, the list goes on to not appear. And we were always told in purity culture, you could wear a paper sack and still, or a potato sack and still look sexy. So we were taught that if something goes wrong, it is all our fault. And rape culture mirrors that as, as women are something to be had, women are something to be conquered in the sense that, well, what she, was she drinking? What was she wearing? How did she do this? How did she invite this? Did she linger? Did she kiss him first? Did she look like she enjoyed it? Mm-hmm. We, we, but really, this is, this is two sides of the same coin. And both sides agree that if something went wrong, it was because of a woman. And yet scripture t- clearly tells us as a man thinketh, so he is mm-hmm. in the Proverbs. And also that it is the interior man, it is that it is the interior desires of a man that are, he is responsible for. We do not get a free pass on exterior sights of a woman. David does not get a free pass on his voyeuristic nature of a woman cleansing herself. And neither does a teenage boy, mm-hmm. neither does a grown man. And we are still taking this purity culture into fraternity culture, into adult life. And we are weaving these narratives through and through in every sector. And we are continually saying, but she looked at me that way. She had those eyes. She came and brought me coffee. She stayed in my office and lingered for a minute. She held my hand a little longer. Well, she was talking to me in the lobby at church. You should have seen the way she was talking to me. It's all her fault. But when you go back to the early church fathers, you see that women were accused of being deformed men, that it was men who were the epitome of purity and women were the epitome of evil. And so if a man was to bed a woman, then he set himself up with evil. He got in bed with the devil, if you will. And so those early church fathers, they allowed that Greco-Roman influence of the time to infiltrate that first century church that Jesus clearly, and we love to hold a few passages of Paul over the entire life of Jesus and his encounters with women, which is ridiculous. (laughs) And what, what, what bait, Nicole, what bait that we would take a few passages out of contact, those household cold household codes in Ephesians over the entire life and ministry of Jesus. And we clearly see the way he engaged women, empowered women, encountered women. Right. Let's take the adulterous woman, for example. Yes. <laughs> the, the Pharisees are trying to trap her. She's mm-hmm. pulled out the accused adulterous woman. And why we did he didn't pull the man out. He pulled the woman out, mm-hmm. these Pharisees. And it's a trap. He has no business messing with this trap. He immediately employs bystander intervention. And he puts himself between those who would cast the stones And this woman who's likely naked, who's likely naked Mm. in the public square, Mm. he puts himself physically between Mm. them, protecting them because they're not going to stone him without a breaking of the law and writes in the sand. And then he addresses in bystander intervention. That's what you would do. You put yourself in between the two people and then you change the subject. Who are you to cast the first stone? What do you think you're doing? Mm. And then I love this. I love this, Nicole, after everyone had left. He didn't address her in front of them. He wanted to have a private conversation. Mm -hmm. They do not get the joy of seeing the beauty of that engagement between him and her. Yeah. And then he addresses her. He doesn't address what happened. He speaks to her future, go and sin no more. Mm -hmm. And then you move fast forward to Mary Magdalene, the woman who is charged with sharing the message of the resurrection to this present day. We're still relying on her word. That woman's word is still what we're walking on today. Uh Uh-huh. And w- may we never forget 
that she called the disciples. She called, she called the boys to come and see, look what happened. What, what do we make of this? Was his she body called the boys? He called the boys and they left again. And then Jesus revealed himself. There is so much just within that passage. Mm. That is wild. That was so purposeful. I yes. am getting chills just talking about this. Uh-huh, that same. was intentional. That was intentional. She waited till the men were gone. He waited till the men were gone to reveal himself, to reveal himself. And so clearly that Greco-Roman influence, that women are second, that the hierarchy, the patriarchy, that infiltrated the, the early church and infiltrated it so much. So then you move forward to the Reformation where <laughs> it really took off. And then you look at the printing press of how not only the Bible was printed, in such a way and in a translation that made it a little blurry of a woman's role and a women's right and a woman's equality with men. But then you move forward again to purity culture and the printing press when we were able to get materials read in the home that were women's job is in the home. Women are to stay silent in the home. That is a relatively new idea. Mm. That's a relatively new idea. Preach. Uh, isn't that wild? That I mean, you uh-huh. look at medieval times and even because in the early no church, one talks about that. We just no accepted one. it because our dads told us that. Yeah. <laughs> you look, I mean, I know I might be getting myself in trouble, so forgive me. You can cut this out if you need to. Wow, this but is you the look place at to do you it. look at okay, you look at Amazon and the top books for women are about being a good wife and a homemaker. Mm-hmm. And and the first place is your family. And of course, love your family. And I am all about having a healthy marriage. Oh my goodness. That is the greatest, one of my greatest goals in my life, but the allegiance to Jesus above that, the allegiance to Jesus first and to serve people and their, and the hierarchy that we've created of women as second. And you know, your home's the first place. And I'm not saying that the home isn't important, but the idea that that's subjugation, that is limiting women to a place where this is where you're allowed to have domain. Right. And in reality, and that that's you what God asks of us. Women or men, we're all free in Christ Jesus. To me, if we are looking at the Bible as a whole, isn't that our main message is our freedom and liberation? <laughs> but liberation. then all the messages that come in are the exact stifling opposite. Yes, we only must look to Jesus. So I've told you a few times about this new project that I started many, many months ago, and we just launched it. It's called Unleash. I personally think it's the perfect way to love yourself and nourish your healing journey in this new year. It's an eight session e-course and a virtual support group for sexual abuse survivors like us. And I personally filmed hours and hours of brand new content. There's stories of over 20 of my dearest friends who will no doubt be relatable and really inspire you. Plus, we have this online platform where we meet virtually in these small confidential support group settings. It's kind of like a book club, but like a really precious one. And we just discussed the lifelong journey of healing from sexual abuse. We just started last week our first set, and it's been so fun, so sweet, so meaningful, and I can't wait to continue to meet with these groups for the next eight weeks. And we just launched the next set of sessions. If anyone is interested, please sign up now at the website, IamOneVoice.org. There's a new set of groups starting in April. It's a great time to sign up. April is Sexual Abuse Awareness Month and no better time to care for your healing journey than now. And if you aren't interested in committing to the support groups, but you still want the new content, all the videos and the new ebook, we have that option too. 
The healing road's long, but we don't have to walk it alone. Join us as we make 2021 a year to become Unleashed. Unleashed has officially launched. Grab your seat. Get signed up now at IamOneVoice.org. That's IamOneVoice.org. A few years ago, I wrote a Bible study on Jesus' encounter with women in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And it changed my life. It changed the whole trajectory of my career. Mm-hmm. It changed everything for me when I saw just how, uh, I don't even want to say progressive because that's, that's not even a good enough word for how ahead of the curve and yeah. how Jesus set in motion the Genesis story from back before the fall. He was living that out each and every day of his life to mm-hmm. see women equal well before we would long to lord over our husband or well before <laughs> men would long to have power over us well before the fall, we see this Eden uh, behavior in Mm -hmm. Jesus toward women. And it really sets the stage and why we must address this. And I got to be honest, Nicole, I'm not the girl who ever thought she would write something like this. I'm very passionate about justice issues, but to put myself in such controversial crosshairs um, is not really, uh, again, I'm agreeable. I'm a three. I want people to be pleased, not because I want them to like me per se, because I fear their wrath. (laughs) Yeah, And so to wade in these waters is only out of my conviction. It's only Mm. out of who Jesus is and what he's called us to do and be. Yeah. And doesn't it, I mean, God doesn't need us to defend him for sure. But but at the same time, like I do feel such a, um, just a burning fire beneath me to set, to help people understand what he saw in us, you know, as women and what he sees today and who he comes alongside, you know, in these kinds of stories of abuse and, you know, how he never would push um, a victim to forgive right away and to, you know, allow a man to step right back into ministry. You know, these aren't the way, this isn't the way of Jesus. And it, and it wants, I I get what you're saying is like, I want to, I I don't want to have to be the one to say these things, but someone's got to say it. (laughs) And there are so many incredible men and women who've gone before us who are doing the work, but the time is now, this is not the time to get this wrong. And this Mm -hmm. is not the time to weaponize scripture. And I, um, I, I, the way it was weaponized against me and perhaps against you was not only don't touch the Lord's anointed, this um, passage in first Samuel 26 taken out of context. And it was really a private conversation between David before he's King and Abishai, his armor bearer. When Abishai has a clear shot to take out King Saul and David says, don't cause bodily harm basically to a sitting King, but he was very vocal against King Saul's decrees and his political positions. So to think that he was, against the work of God is asinine. There's no room for that. There's no clear evidence. Scholarly research, theologians would all agree there's no room for that. And so the way pastors and ministers have taken that out of context is ridiculous. And then you also look at this um, one that is very much taken out of context is Matthew 18, which is, oh, go to your brother if there's an issue. Mm -hmm. You know, this invitation for brothers or sisters to work it out in horizontal relationships. But but the vertical relationship and of leadership is completely different when it's a faith leader, not a friend. And those lines get blurry if you're friends with your faith leader. But the case remains is we're told, oh, well, we need two or three more witnesses. And what they're saying is we want two or three more victims. We want to see him victimize a few more people before we'll even consider these allegations. So go ahead and destroy a few more lives mm-hmm. before, we'll even, before we'll even take a look. Mm. And so, but women who are self-silencing 
there's likely victims, there's likely people taken advantage of and witnesses, one woman and her mother and her husband, whoever it may be there, there's your two, there's your three, but we, we don't accept that. And we are, we hold the perceived path to raising these issues over the actual accusations and the misconduct. I was told, well, you handled this wrong of how you brought this forward. And that was a bigger deal. That was Mm. a bigger deal than the actual misconduct. Mm. And so when you mix that with don't touch the Lord's anointed and, you know, honor your leaders above all else, they are your protectors. They are your providers. Um, They answer before the Lord. Mm. When you, when you continually point to authoritarian leadership and not a democratic theocracy and understanding that we all have a place and we all have a voice, we are giving men unchecked power. And right. then when someone speaks up or someone has a voice of dissent, we're saying that they are immune to it right. and that there's no room to critique or criticize their behavior. And we've created this bubble wrap around them. They're just this little bubble boy where they're untouchable. You look at Carl Lentz. He believed he was untouchable, oh, untouchable. Sure. This man had everything going in the world. So known, uh, I mean, a following labeling in the millions mm. all and the destroyed it all, all the celebrity status, destroyed it all mm. to, 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 to have a woman on the side. It's it just, mm-hmm. it's, it's jarring. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but using his power to get it into silence. Absolutely. Yeah. All just along with the Ravi and the Andy Savage. And I mean, we could just keep going and going as you do in your book. I'm really amazed at, you know, how you were able to incorporate so many of these stories um, through, through the whole message of the book. But one thing that I think really resonates and will resonate with our listeners is when you talk about um, how women are trained to be silent from their life experiences and you know how the questions that 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 are asked of us you know and the expectation on us to you said harness her story and wrangle it into something shiny and beautiful you know one thing that is a constant with any resource i put out is that healing from any kind of sexual trauma is a lifelong journey right. and you know, I've put out books from some from pretty uh, conservative publishers that make it kind of look like it's a nice, pretty package. And the reason why I might be invited to speak on certain stages is because it's Christian testimony. In the end, like I'm able to smile and I have children and, you know, like, right. but that has always kind of grossed me out <laughs> because that isn't the story. And I don't think God expects that from us as women. And in fact, as you're writing in this book, that that is continuing this entire system of abusive power, the expectation of women, and it's not helping the cause. Right. We expect women to look like a 10, be agreeable, uh, laugh on command. We expect women to get over it. And I think especially in, in faith spaces, we'll let you break down, but there is an expiration date on that. You need to get it together. And if you continually struggle 
then you're that girl. You're that girl. Oh, but she's always so struggling or, oh, she just can't get over it. She just can't move through it. <laughs> and so I know Oh, I love that song. And so for fear of labeling, for mm-hmm. fear of not fitting into a faith space, my goodness, we will move the train along the tracks. Even if the healing has not been done, we will give the exterior that everything is okay. Because if we don't, we'll be banned. We'll be barred from the system. We'll lose our place. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants that. Nobody Mm -hmm. wants that. Right. And so we're willing to go underground and let our, let our experiences haunt us, keep us up at night, uh, just destroy our mental health. And really they seep into relationships. And as much as we'd want to assume that because we're not dealing with it, it's not there. Nothing could be further from the truth that is going to affect every area of our life, every area of our emotional health, mental health, relational health, physical health, every part of that. And I just, we have to give room for women to come forward with their stories. And the honest truth is we are so afraid what people are going to say because we don't know how to handle it. And I think that's one of the problems is if we are going to walk and disciple people and not just grow churches, but grow disciples, Mm -hmm. we have got to be willing to be ready to have hard conversations without judgment. Because long before a woman will speak up to a police officer or to her pastor, she is likely silenced by her girlfriends. She's likely silenced by her husband. She's likely silenced by a mentor, by a small group leader who's like, well, are you sure? Are you sure that happened? I am guilty of saying these things to a woman who came forward. I'm like, but wait, wait, because I knew the cost of that. I knew if this happened, this is going to shake up everything. So I just want to be sure. But real in reality, that is judgment and minimizing and and really not offering the the active listening that's necessary. So yeah. when we talk about how do where do we move from here? How do we how do we deal with this? I think two ways. We must lament that this is happening. When a woman comes forward or with with any knowledge, both corporately or both individually, when we hear of these things happen, we must lament that this would happen, that this right. is wrong and this is bad. We're mm-hmm. still surprised, Nicole. We're like, no way. What? Right. We're still surprised. We must instantly. Well, I will say, you know, and thank you for owning what you, what you were sharing about that. Like that's, that is also a first step, but even, even women are silenced, not by when they're telling their friends, but when they're hearing what their friends think about somebody else's story. It's oh, not even gosh, our story. Yeah. A lot of times we're silenced because, oh, dang, she thought that about her. Well, that's what she's going to think about me, right? Exactly. So when we're lamenting, I think there's a lot of power in lamenting even other stories that we hear about yep. so that the women who've been silenced because they're everywhere, the stories are right. in every circle you're in, they're seeing and hearing your non-judgment and your lament over somebody you don't even know. There's so much power in doing that. Absolutely. I think, you know, I, I talked about Dr. Kristen Blasey Ford and how the world was watching yes. this woman shamed and every survivor is sitting there thinking, well, now I know how they feel about me. Yep. Now I know how they would handle 100%. me. And so yep. the amount of people who thought, well, now I'm never speaking up because look about how you annihilated her. This woman has 24 seven security on her house and for her children and for her husband and for herself because right. of speaking up. Right. My goodness, look how you annihilated her character, her mm-hmm. appearance, her actions, an accomplished graduate professor. It. It's not worth it. Who puts themselves through this, which also speaks to how little women lie about this. Because the, 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 the slice of women, very tiny slice of the pie, who's willing to speak up 
is, is annihilated. And so the 90% are watching what's happened and thinking it's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to lose how people view me. I don't want to lose how people see me. And in reality, we are societally keeping women from the collective care necessary because they're watching our actions well before they ever speak up. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So continue the way forward because we've got to be what be, we have to be a part of change. So what is that going to look like for us? Well, and in addition to the bystander intervention, I want to bring that down on a micro level. I talked about how Jesus really, you see how he employed that with the woman caught in adultery, but we can do that on the smallest of occasions. When we walk into, I'm just going to set up a situation for us. When we walk in the church lobby and we see Doug talking to car, talking to Rosie and Rosie looks a little uncomfortable. We can just walk up and be like, Hey, Rosie, I had something I wanted to catch you up on. Rosie, did you want to just go over to the coffee corner and grab a coffee together? Be that girl who just interrupts the conversation. Be that guy who just interrupts the conversation. We need everyone on alert looking for like, hey, that doesn't look right. Something. So before it ever gets to CNN, we could have walked into the church lobby and seen like, hey, I don't, Doug's body language, the way he, the way he's got his hand on, on Rosie's shoulder, I don't, that something doesn't look right right there. And, and then after the fact that after we've interrupted, we could go to Doug and be like, Hey, Doug, I don't think you realize how you came across to Rosie. I, I could tell she looked just a little uncomfortable. Maybe you didn't mean it like that, but I just want to let you know. Doug knows he's been seen, right? <laughs> Doug knows he's been caught. And then we can go to Rosie and we can say, hey, I noticed the way Doug was talking to you. And you know how many women want to feel seen? Approximately all of them. <laughs> Approximately all of them. We can go to women and be like, hey, I noticed something was a little off. Mm-hmm. Now, this basic, basic three-step process that I just laid out is being used by the military. It's being used by large organizations because if we can catch, if everybody can consider themselves a low-grade whistleblower, a low-grade activist and ally in this, we will stop this before it ever gets off the ground. Mm -hmm. We really, really can. Now, of course, you have those situations where it's happening at home or it's happening far away and you have these master narcissists. But again, narcissists are charming. When there's some overt charm, and I'm not saying we're like, oh, he done did it. He's a predator. No, but if there's charm, we can see like, hey, let's see how this charm plays out. Mm-hmm. I'm not inviting us all to be, you know, just pessimistic. I'm inviting us to look at how body language, how spoken language, mm-hmm. uh, both large and small environments can play out and we can, we can really step in. And what if we find out we go to Rosie and she you know, we go to the bathroom with her. She bursts into tears and she's like, Doug did this. And we're like, I'll go with you. We can lend our strength. We can lend our strength. Mm-hmm. So back to this lament, we can listen with active listening. We need to consider our body language, our facial expressions. We can reta- refrain from asking questions mm-hmm. that are really kind of searching for more information or evidence. That's not the time. It's a time to listen. Absolutely. It's a time to listen. And then we can learn we can educate ourselves on how this happens. Oh, she can't string the traumatic events together in order. That's not her lying. That's proof of trauma mm-hmm. in her, in the way neurologically she's processing this because it is such a, it's such a, a stressful event that she's trying to recall uh, for you. We can then truly know that love equals justice. It, it's Cornell West, I believe that said, uh, justice is love in public. We can call the police with her. We can go to HR. We can go to the elders. We can stand with her because a victim has an emotional uh, cycle that she is walking through that we're likely not walking through. 
Yes, we need to consider our proximity to power. Yes, we need to consider what we'll lose. I stayed silent for so long because I knew I would lose so much. I was the breadwinner for my family. There was so much on the line. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I knew I wouldn't be able to live with myself, Nicole, unless I did the right thing. And sometimes the right thing is the hard thing. Mm So as we lend our strength and walk with love and justice, we must understand those are not divorce. And that's where that narrative that we talked about earlier of, but just forgive him. Well, he hasn't repented and I will not be rushed to forgiveness. I remember sitting in a church service and feeling so guilty that I wouldn't enter into a reconciliation process with a predator because that's the, the faith story that I had been said, been, been told of reconciliation overall. And in reality, boundaries, healthy boundaries, Henry Cloud would be so proud, healthy boundaries invite us to say, you know what? There's not reconciliation here. You have not repented. You are not willing to seek help. You are not willing to be removed from your position. There's no repentance here, let alone redress for a woman's experiences. There needs to be financial redress, emotional redress, therapy. There needs to roll out the red carpet. Hmm. And what we're seeing is a lot of churches offering a, I'm so sorry this happened. They're saying it from the stage. They're offering in a press release. Yeah. And there needs to be a little bit more than I'm sorry. Yeah. And they're getting applauded for it, Nicole. They're getting applauded for it. Mm -hmm. And in reality, not only do we need to remove a predator, we need to burn the parts of the system to the ground that enabled the predator and rework it. So everyone is safe. So everyone can come forward and not lose their paycheck, not lose their opportunities and not lose their resources. That's what kills me the most is just the applauding of the man who can humble himself and admit and say sorry, but then the continued demonization of the woman that he took advantage of. And this affects her the rest of her life, the you rest know, of her life. and Absolutely. just the, the need for change there. But I love what you're talking about with the bystander, um, because I do think that the bystander holds a lot of power when it comes to change for future generations. Yes. I mean, the way that we teach our children about gender, um, about responsibility, body awareness. body awareness. Yeah. You're the yeah, boss equality. of your body. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And the consent and all those little things, you know, they add up and I think that they really do. They really do make a difference. But then when we're teaching the opposite, you know, that a man can get away with anything or that, you know, if the girls at school are wearing a certain thing, they're asking for it. Like that is a very quick lesson for a young boy that will continue this crap for ever. (laughs) Right. And research shows that, you know, middle school boys are the harassment starts young. It's, It's hard to find a middle school girl who hasn't been harassed. And they're doing it to prove their quote unquote manhood to the other boys and to the other girls around them Mm -hmm. to be seen as a man that this has been the rite of passage to harass Mm -hmm. and harm. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, if that isn't messed up, I don't know what it is. No, absolutely. But it does, it does show how we can really make a dent starting from birth Right, you know, by the way that we are deconstructing some of this, and then the language that we're using um, with our children. I loved um, what you shared towards the end of your book, "Pray Tell," about allyship, and you said to serve as an active ally first requires examining our place within our given hierarchy, asking ourselves, "How do I benefit from silence? What power or proximity to power do I possess that would cause me to defend a powerful man?" 
faced with accusations. What do I believe about a woman's place in my world? How have my past experiences, education, faith, exposure to media, family of origin shaped my understanding of women's rights? And have I allowed the scriptures which regard men and women as equal to instruct my humanity or has my humanity, geography, political preference, or religious affiliation instructed my belief about women should endure? So you just continue with these questions that are so pointed and thinking about how we've kind of been raised up to believe certain things and how we have actually supported without even thinking about it, because we've just been walking out what we've been taught, how we've supported pastors, politicians, policies, people in power who've abused their power. And we all know about it, but deny that it's even an issue. I mean, It's just continually, you know, really thinking about because we just spit off the things that we've been taught and the things that we've grown up with without really thinking about what this means. And I think these questions are so good um, to help each person consider. I mean, I'm talking even survivors. I mean, I have survivors on my Facebook page who will comment on something that I've said about some major issue and they will defend the perpetrator simply because they've bought into that wow. denomination, the patriarchy, that political party. Like, yeah. it's amazing to me that even those who have, you know, experienced sexual violence themselves can still protect an offender in certain wow. situations. But these are the questions that allyship yeah. requires of us. Requires, And it's very I- good. It's very, very good. Dismantling the foul thinking you said um, that would cause us to silence women. It's vital as serving as an ally. And I think we all want to be an ally. Come on. That's right. And I think, especially when you think of politics, it is so hard to view this issue without a partisan lens. But just as you said, it's required, like it's required. We must step back from any labels that we have put on ourselves. And just as a follower of Jesus, I know what Jesus says about this. How have I allowed anything to pollute that? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering as we maybe only have a few minutes left, what would you say your, um, your process has been with Jesus? I don't know really where you started as far as, you know, did you grow up in purity culture, conservatism, um, your views as such? Were they similar to mine? And you've had to really kind of dig deep and contextualize scripture and, you know, do all of this kind of yeah. work? Or has this been something that you've always leaned towards and, and yeah. now you're just being a voice on it? I, I, I had a weird mix of, I grew up in a very egalitarian church. Women were pastors, women were in okay. leadership. Um, incredibly strong women in my life starting in middle school. So I had a clear vision of what it looked like to be in, to co-lead in marriage and co-parent in marriage and um, see as co-heirs of what that could look like and see women in power. But at the same time, I was deeply steeped in purity culture. Okay. So I crossed those wires mm-hmm. and it made for a pursue your career. You can do anything. Submit to your husband and your body is the reason for the world's downfall. And I'm like, wait a second, which is it? You know, like how are, how can these coexist? And in reality, they can't. 
And so they, it honestly, if I'm being completely transparent, there were times, especially in my twenties, when I was working, um, among many other men and women, and I was very often the youngest one in the room and the only woman of color in the room, mm-hmm. uh, person of color in the room, wow. that narrative that I learned in high school kept me silent. And, you know, I remember, um, mm-hmm. someone saying, you know, no one, nobody would listen to you unless you were so beautiful. And I just laughed it off because I didn't, I was like, oh, this is my fault for wearing this dress today. Mm-hmm. I was a grown woman in my twenties. And I thought, oh my gosh, I shouldn't have worn this dress today to work. Mm-hmm. And it was a completely modest dress, you know, for a workplace environment. And some people and, could say that's a modest comment, right? These right, little comments that we right. get, you know? Right. And, and I, and the delivery and the facial expression and the lingering gaze that he gave it with and the way he watched me walk out of the room, right? You're, it's all these small things that yeah. you're like, this is not a big deal. I'm not going to be prude and make it a big deal, Absolutely. right? I'm not right. going to make it a big deal because he doesn't think it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so what have we done? We've set up these systems where this is okay. Mm-hmm. This is acceptable behavior. Permissible. Yeah. Completely permissible. So mm-hmm. I would say growing up with that and then now as an adult and having boys, I have a 10-year-old and six-year-old. Mm-hmm. who I'm like, no, this will not stand, not on my watch. Not after I played all the rules of evangelical culture. I lettered in youth group, played by all the rules they set for me. And then when I needed them most, they silenced and slandered the, the women around me. And they waved the don't touch the Lord's anointed flag. And they waved the don't attack the gospel of Jesus Christ flag when I had spent myself on the gospel. So seeing the irregularities and seeing the inconsistency was like, no, I love the church and I want to call her to the carpet and I want to be part of this change. I love that because that I think is a real crossroad for many of us who are deconstructing some of this and, and pulling the rug back and looking at all the ugliness. But for me, as I continue to do that and I'm like, I'm seeing all these little comments um, that are being made and the abuse of power and the sexualization and that we're just letting slide by And knowing it's not Jesus, that's, I guess, what keeps me close is I'm so mad at the systems and the institutions that are protecting it. Um, But Jesus is still so attractive. (laughs) Like he's still, he's such an example of, of what we could be, of what we should be and how we can be an ally, how we can celebrate women in a way that's not objectifying and, um, so it's like all of these other things are so frustrating and angering and um, wrong that have yeah. to do with the church. Right. However, Jesus remains. And Jesus remains. He's Lord of it. He's Lord yeah. of it. And he won't let this stand. He won't. Not on his watch. I'm going to sit with that. <laughs> Thank you, Tiffany. Oh, my honor, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Absolutely. Awesome. Well, good. Well, we're excited to celebrate you. We'll push your book out to everybody. I honestly, I loved it. It's like my heartbeat right now. So yeah, I was so honored by your words at the beginning. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks guys. Bless you. you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.